The House and Senate come back today. The House will stay in session for just two and a half days this week as they've got a retreat scheduled for Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. It is House Democrats have a retreat scheduled. The Senate will also stay in session just through Wednesday because both Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans will be retreating this week, but they're not going to be going to Philadelphia like House Democrats. They're just going to stay in Washington. Last week in the House, the House came back to work on Monday and voted on three bills under suspension of the rules. Two of them passed. One of them failed to get the two-thirds vote necessary to pass under suspension. On Tuesday, the House took up the rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 3967, the Honoring Our Promise to Address Comprehensive Toxics Act of 2021, also known as the Honoring Our Pact Act. On Wednesday, the House took up and passed H.R.E.S. 956, supporting the people of Ukraine. This resolution, quote, demands an immediate ceasefire and the full withdrawal of Russian forces from Ukrainian territory and expresses unequivocal support for Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. It also backs the continued use of sanctions to fully isolate the Putin regime economically and urges the United States and its allies and partners to deliver additional and immediate defensive security assistance to Ukraine. The resolution passed by a vote of 426 to 3. Then the House began considering amendments to H.R. 3967, the Honoring Our Pact Act. The House adopted two of the amendments offered on Wednesday and then adopted two more amendments offered on Thursday. Then the House passed H.R. 3967 as amended by a vote of 256 to 174. And then they were done. This week in the House, they'll come back in session today with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to consider four bills under suspension of the rules. Tomorrow, the House is scheduled to consider two more bills under suspension. H. Conrez 70, condemning threats of violence against historically black colleges and universities and reaffirming support for HBCUs and their students and HRES 891, condemning the heinous attack on Congregation Beth Israel in Colleyville, Texas on January 15, 2022. Further, though it has not yet officially been posted on the floor schedule, I anticipate that the House is going to deal with the measure to ban imports of Russian oil. Moreover, the House Ways and Means Committee may also file new legislation to repeal permanent normal trade relations status for Russia and Belarus. Speaker Pelosi also said the U.S. may begin the process of trying to kick Russia out of the World Trade Organization. That bill could be filed as soon as today with a vote as soon as tomorrow. In addition, the House is going to have to take up and pass either a continuing resolution or an omnibus spending bill before the current continuing resolution expires at midnight on Friday night. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Monday and took up a motion to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to H.R. 3755, the most radical abortion bill ever voted on in the United States Senate. The motion to invoke cloture failed by a vote of 46 to 48, with Democrat Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia crossing party lines to vote with Republicans against the motion. Then the Senate took up a motion to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to H.R. 3076, the Postal Services Reform Bill. That motion passed by a vote of 74 to 20. On Wednesday, the Senate took up S.J. Res. 32, quote, a joint resolution providing for congressional disapproval under Chapter 8 of Title V of the United States Code 
of the rules submitted by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services relating to Medicare and Medicaid programs, omnibus COVID-19 healthcare staff vaccination. In other words, a Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval of the CMS vaccine mandate on 17 million healthcare workers. By a vote of 49 to 44, the United States Senate agreed to the resolution of disapproval, that is striking down the Biden vaccine mandate on healthcare workers and sent it to the House. On Thursday, the Senate took up SJ Res 38, a joint resolution to declare terminated the national emergency declared by President Trump on March 13, 2020. By a vote of 48 to 47, with all Republicans voting in favor and all Democrats voting against, the resolution passed. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, the Senate will come back to work on Monday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on cloture on H.R. 3076, the Postal Service Reform Act. Then, based on the majority leader's cloture filings, I anticipate the Senate will take up the nominations of Maria L. Pagan to be a Deputy United States Trade Representative and Ed Gonzalez to be an Assistant Secretary of Homeland Security. And at some point, the Senate will also have to vote on a government funding bill, either a CR or an omnibus, depending on how successful the appropriators are at coming to a final agreement. Now to last week's State of the Union address. On Tuesday of last week, President Biden delivered what was arguably the worst State of the Union address since I began watching State of the Union addresses back in the 1970s. He began with a 12-minute ode to Ukraine that sought bipartisan credit for holding firm against Russian aggression without finding a way to acknowledge that his own policies, in particular the incompetent conduct of his administration's calamitous withdrawal from Afghanistan, had an awful lot to do with Russian dictator Vladimir Putin's decision to invade. What made the speech so bad, in my view, was that it was totally divorced from reality. Biden recognized many of the challenges we face, but never connected the fact that his policies have caused a lot of those problems. He acknowledged that inflation and gas prices are up, for instance, but he did not follow that up with an acknowledgement that his policies shutting down U.S.-based energy production had anything to do with it. He talked about the surge at the southern border and declared simply and boldly that we needed to secure the border and fix the immigration system, but didn't say a word about how he had reversed the Trump policies that had been so successful in reducing the flow of illegal immigration previously. The rest of the speech was much the same. Now to the Breyer replacement search. On Wednesday of last week, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin, Democrat of Illinois, announced that the confirmation hearings for Judge Katanji Brown Jackson would begin on Monday, March 21, and continue through Thursday, March 24. That would mean that the interval between her nomination and the start of her confirmation hearings would be just 24 days. And that would be the shortest interval from the announcement of a nomination to the opening of the confirmation hearings for any Supreme Court justice since 1975, except for one, Amy Coney Barrett, whose interval was just 16 days. Of course, back when Barrett was nominated, Democrats went into high dudgeon screaming bloody murder that the confirmation was the, quote, most rushed, most partisan, least legitimate Supreme Court nomination process in our nation's history, in our nation's entire history, and it should not proceed, end quote, as then Minority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York said, or 
As then Senator Kamala Harris said, quote, Senate Republicans have made it crystal clear that rushing a Supreme Court nomination is more important than helping and supporting the American people, end quote. Goose meet gander. Now to government spending. As we discussed last week, the government is currently operating under a continuing resolution, its third CR since the current fiscal year began on October 1. The current CR expires at midnight Friday night, that is 12.01 a.m. Saturday, begins the unfunded portion of the government shutdown. Last week, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer announced that the House would be voting on a government funding bill on Tuesday of this week, that is tomorrow. He was assuming that the government funding bill would be an omnibus spending bill, an amalgam of all 12 appropriations bills wrapped up together into one ginormous bill that would appropriate about $1.5 trillion in funds for the remaining seven months of the fiscal year. But that was before the Biden administration announced it wanted additional funds for Ukraine and for COVID. $10 billion for the Ukraine and another $22.5 billion for COVID. Just about everyone in both parties on Capitol Hill wants to spend the money on Ukraine because nobody in either party wants to be seen as weak on Putin. On the other hand, while most Democrats seem supportive of the administration's request for the $22.5 billion in additional COVID funding, just about zero Republicans are ready to vote for that. Most of them want to know how much is left over in unspent appropriated COVID funding and want to know why that money can't be used instead of appropriating new funds. In fact, last week, Utah Republican Senator Mitt Romney sent a letter with signatures from himself and 34 Senate Republican colleagues to the leadership asking for an investigation of what has happened to the $5 trillion that's already been appropriated for COVID relief efforts. So the White House understands it may not get its full $22.5 billion. Appropriators are trying to figure out if they could meet the White House's request by rescinding unstate, uh, I'm sorry, unspent state pandemic funds. Meanwhile, on Friday afternoon, Utah Republican Senator Mike Lee and nine other Republican colleagues circulated a dear colleague letter threatening to object to procedural requests to expedite consideration of the funding bill before the March 11 deadline, unless Senate leaders allow them a vote on an amendment defunding the remaining Biden administration vaccine mandates on medical workers, military personnel, federal employees, and federal contractors. Wrote the senators, quote, we are writing to let you know that we will once again not consent to a time agreement that eases passage of a CR or omnibus that funds these mandates. At the very least, we will require a roll call vote on an amendment that defunds the enforcement of these vaccine mandates for the spending period covered by the government funding measure, unquote. In addition to Senator Lee, the letter was signed by Senators Ted Cruz, Steve Daines, Rick Scott, James Langford, Roger Marshall, Ron Johnson, Mike Braun, Cynthia Lummis, and Rand Paul. So here are the dynamics of how the voting will take place. Under normal circumstances, you'd likely have most of the Republicans in both the House and the Senate voting against an omnibus package because they simply don't like spending that much money in one bill. And when the Biden administration first raised the possibility of additional funding for Ukraine, many Republicans said they would like that dealt with separately. But Democrats, 
who, because they are in the majority, control the floor and therefore control the way legislation is written, understand that adding the Ukraine funding to the omnibus bill would make it more likely that they would attract Republican votes for that bill. So they've told Republicans to take a long walk off a short pier, and they've added the Ukraine funding directly to the omnibus. We'll still have lots of Republicans voting against the omnibus, but fewer than would have before the Ukraine funding was added to it. As of Monday morning, that is today, we still don't know whether or not they'll be voting on an omnibus package or another continuing resolution. Our latest information says House Democrats are working to file that omnibus either late this evening or possibly Tuesday so they can vote on it Wednesday before departing to Philadelphia for their retreat. Further, the House may use a procedural maneuver to send that bill to the Senate as a message so Majority Leader Schumer can get the bill on the floor more easily. Now to the January 6th committee. We haven't talked about it a lot. On Wednesday of last week, the House committee investigating the events of January 6th said for the first time that, in the words of the Associated Press, quote, its evidence suggests crimes may have been committed by former President Donald Trump and his associates in the failed effort to overturn the outcome of the 2020 presidential election, end quote. The statement is part of a 221-page court filing in a lawsuit brought by John Eastman, a lawyer and law professor who was consulting with Trump in the wake of the 2020 election. Lawmakers, even acting together as a committee, do not have the power to indict anyone on their own and only have the authority to make a referral to the Department of Justice. Now to something that we haven't talked about also in a long time, the Iran nuclear deal. While most of the world has been paying attention to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, another international event of great import has been taking place. Multi-party negotiations between the US, the UK, France, Germany, Russia, and China on one side of the table against Iran on the other in a discussion to determine whether or not the parties can revive the 2015 Iran nuclear deal from which President Trump withdrew the United States in 2018. You'll recall we strongly opposed that original deal negotiated by the Obama administration in 2015. We did not appreciate that that deal didn't actually prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons. It merely delayed that action. We didn't appreciate that that deal said nothing about Iran's ballistic missile development program, nor about Iran's ongoing support for international terrorism targeted against the United States and its allies. The new deal is even worse than the original deal, if you can believe that. The so-called breakout time, that is the length of time that we believe it would take Iran to deploy a nuclear weapon after leaving the deal, is now reduced to six months after, rather than the already pathetic 12 months estimated in the original deal. Further, Iran is demanding that the United States remove the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps from the State Department's list of foreign terrorist organizations. And Iran is also insisting that the United States drop sanctions that have been placed in place for decades, sanctions that were left in place by the original 2015 deal. And from the you're really not going to believe this file comes this nugget. The Iranians are so angry at the United States for withdrawing from the original deal in 2018 that they refuse to negotiate with U.S. diplomats. So U.S. interests are being represented by the diplomats from Russia. Yes, 
That's right. Even though we have sanctioned Russia for its brutal invasion of Ukraine, we nevertheless continue to rely on Russian diplomats to safeguard our interests in ongoing talks with Iran. On Saturday, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov upset the talks when he demanded written guarantees from the U.S. Secretary of State that sanctions imposed by the United States on Russia for its invasion of Ukraine would not prevent Moscow from trading with Tehran. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken responded a day later, saying the sanctions imposed against Russia by the United States have nothing to do with Iran. Quote, these things are totally different and are just not in any way linked together. So I think that's irrelevant, unquote, he said yesterday on CBS's Face the Nation. But Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, reported today that, quote, an Iranian official was quoted as saying on March 7 that Russia's demands at talks in Vienna on reviving a landmark nuclear deal between Tehran and world powers are, quote, not constructive. End quote, end quote. The Iranian official said that Russian interference was geared to securing its own interests, wrote Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, quote, by postponing the revival of the agreement between Iran and the Western powers and delaying Iran's return to the oil market, Russia is seeking to raise crude prices and increase its own energy revenue, according to Tasnim the news agency with strong links to the Revolutionary Guard Corps in Iran. This deal is very close to being done. It's also very close to collapsing. Stay tuned. Now, finally, to Russia and Ukraine. Russia's invasion of Ukraine entered its second week, and more than a million and a half Ukrainians have fled their homes and become refugees. Ukrainian President Zelensky, on a conference call Saturday with more than 300 American members of Congress, asked for more from the West as Ukraine fights Russian invaders. He asked for more sanctions. He asked the U.S. to ban Russian oil imports. He asked for more weapons. And he asked for the establishment and maintenance of a no-fly zone over Ukraine to prevent Russian air forces from attacking Ukrainian civilians. The Biden administration has pushed back on the request for the establishment of a no-fly zone and on the request for an end to U.S. Uh, to US imports of Russian oil. Most members of Congress and most Western leaders have so far pushed back on the request for a no-fly zone, saying that would put Western pilots in direct conflict with Russian pilots, and that, in their words, would start World War III. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, though, said at her regular Thursday press conference last week that she supported a ban on U.S. imports of Russian oil. As more and more congressional Democrats join her call for a ban on Russian oil imports, I expect we'll see the Biden administration find a way to reverse itself on that issue. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is considering a request from the Polish government. The Warsaw government asked the Biden administration if the U.S. would replace Polish MiG-29 jets with American fighter planes so that Poland could give the Ukrainians fighter planes that its pilots have already been trained to fly. The Biden administration does not oppose Poland giving Ukraine its own planes, but has not yet committed. As for their concern over escalation and the possible opening of World War III, Russian dictator Vladimir Putin said on Saturday to a group of flight attendants at an Aeroflot training center near Moscow that the Western sanctions already imposed against Russia are, in his words, quote, 
akin to a declaration of war, but thank God it has not come to that, end quote. That's our Washington Report for this week. 